What were you saying about a hat? It's something that happened with Miss Tesman this morning. She put her hat down over there on the chair, and I pretended I thought it was the maid's. <laughs> but my dear Mrs. Hedda, how could you do that? Heard that nice old lady. Well, it's these things come over me just like that suddenly, and I can't hold back. I don't know how to explain it. You're not really happy. That's the heart of it. And I don't know why I ought to be happy. Or maybe you can tell me why. Yes. Among other things, because you've gotten just the home you always wanted. You believe that story, too. You mean there's nothing to it? <laughs> oh, yes, there's something to it. Well? There's this much to it. That I used Tesman as my escort home from parties last summer. Unfortunately, I was headed quite a different way. How true. Yes, you went several different ways last summer. <laughs> For shame, Mrs. Hedda. Well, so you and uh, Tesman... Uh... Yes, so one evening we walked by this place, and Tesman, poor thing, was writhing in torment because he couldn't find anything to say. And I felt sorry for a man of such learning. And so, just to help him off the hook, I came out with some rash remark about this lovely house being where I'd always wanted to live. Uh, no more than that. No more that evening. But afterward? Yes, my rashness had its consequences, Judge. I'm afraid our rashness all too often does, Mrs. Hedda. Thanks. But don't you see, it was this passion for the old Falk mansion that drew George Tesman and me together. Oh yes, Judge, I was going to say, you make your bed and then you lie in it. But that's priceless, so actually you couldn't care less about all of this. God knows, not in the least. But even now? Now that we've got it furnished, a bit cozier for you here? Ugh, all the rooms seem to smell of lavender and dried roses. But maybe that scent was brought in by Aunt Julie. <laughs> no, I think it's a bequest from the late Mrs. Falk. Yes, there's something in it of the odor of death. It's like a corsage, the day after the dance. The theater, the theater. Theater. To be or not to be. Theater. Theater. The plays the thing. Is this like an oboe? Yeah. That's not low enough to be an oboe. Scott's singing. It's just... What I'm making an noises because now I'm committed to the bit. Scat. <laughs> For the next however many years, Listen. I'm guessing I'm guessing 12 to 14 more years of this podcast. Ladies I will and have to do it. <laughs> but bits can come Scott and go. <laughs> I mean, I hope we're go. not doing the same thing in season 10 at the top of the show. There is one bit that we have sort of canceled out, which was that CJ is a chain-smoking slap Mm -hmm. which yeah. early on it was that she was a chain smoking whore because it came out of some bit that I can't remember what it was. And it I'm was sorry. the Sam Shepard episode. Go listen yeah. to it. Miniseries y'all. Then it became, we were like, that feels weird. We should switch it to slap because you know, Ionesco is, is a slap Vinian. Uh, and now we haven't said it in so long. I feel like it's just a dead bit. That's yeah. okay. We say That's it okay. when we hang out. That's fine. Yeah. Listen, right. y'all can use slat to your heart's content. Mm -hmm. Enjoy. Slat's, slat's fun. Chain smoking whore um, loses its charm after a little while. Right. When, whore. It's in, when it's not like, in context, we just look like terrible people. So. Right. <laughs> like, and it's also hard when when way. we're 
when we're seeing our like i can't look cj in the face and, and call her chain smoking horror via text i can yes <laughs> on slack it's fine on I slack it's say, really easy it's really easy i will say though uh you know we've said it many times on the podcast we're also pro-sex work here and we're not trying to call anyone legalize a, it a derogatory term in any no, way no, so no. no we apologize no. for that anyway all that to say how y'all doing? It's good to see you. It's good to see you. Yeah, I'm friends. Great. I'm having it's, fun. It's been a week for our listeners, but we're recording this right after our first one, not to diminish the magic Whoa, of podcasting. Time machine. Yeah. The magic of podcasting is that you can record as many episodes as you want and put them out whenever you want to. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, how's your week going? It's great. It's fucking Friday, so I'm stoked. Yeah, it's Friday, but I have a long weekend as I am producing a show. So that you guys are coming Woo! to. Um, I will no, say, that we already, already saw. Seen it. You will have already seen and it by the time I Harris. have yeah. notes. <laughs> do you? <laughs> I merely what do you always say to me? Name, I have get Victor notes. on the podcast and I give him yeah. all the notes. We yeah, I love Victor. Vic- we should get we him. We should on get Victor. A, he'd be great on this. Like he's yeah. he's so smart and. He's you'd have, awesome. you'd have seen me sitting in the back of the house with my little clip light uh, yeah. <laughs> on on my journal where I was taking copious notes about the direction, the production, the producing yeah. in general. Sure. No, it's fair. Acting. It's all fair. Mm-hmm. I had an actor. I had um, for a long time, I had this amazing, it was a gift from a stage manager, uh, a pen with a light like on it. And mm-hmm. so when I would take notes, this actor would see see my hand going and would be like with the little light and going, Hey man, Hey man, like you're freaking me out. And I'm like, like, I'm sorry, That's buddy. They, I can't write in the dark. I can't do it with any kind of efficiency in the dark. And I've yeah. never known. No, it's a, a Walter Shipley um, was uh, an old professor of mine. And uh, an ama- he started casting me in college productions when I was in high school and he was just a cool dude but he would sit and he for a long time when he could still get away with it he would smoke these long more cigarettes i don't know if Mm. you know what a little skinny brown Mm -hmm. and he would smoke and you would just see you would see this little the the glow of the of the ember of the end of the cigarette and if it intensified while you were rehearsing you knew you were in shit that you were going to get reamed how wes anderson i love it very yeah (laughs) very wes anderson of him uh okay well so last time we left off talking about a doll's house we were about midway through that discussion, I feel like, but there's some big things that we haven't discussed yet. And mm-hmm. including, I have a pretty massive hot take on this, which we won't start there, but, but hi, 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 hi. <laughs> <laughs> what podcast is this? What are we, our energy is different. It's, it's different. We, we went on intro. a break and now it's different. Oh, uh, right. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> fuck guys that's the kind of energy you're about to get in this podcast i don't know what happened welcome to yes. theater theater the theater podcast for theater nerds made by three theater makers from the la theater scene i'm jay bailey Bertram. i'm cj merriman and i'm scott leggett Ooh. and each week yeah. we get together to discuss debate and disseminate the evolutions of the great playwrights by taking a macro look at three of their plays and this is part two of our mini series covering the works of henrik ibsen that's right it's Potter Gabbler, part D. Pew, pew, pew. And I'm CJ Merriman. 
<laughs> CJ's breakdown, go. <laughs> Who are you trying to convince? Let's right do now? it again. Yeah. Hey, um, Scott. Uh, yeah. So, um, Scottopedia, right? That's where we go. <laughs> no, we did that in the last one. I'm but I do, have a pick up, I do have a pickup point. I have a pickup point. Give right. it to us. Give it. So in the first part we talked about, you know, we like to talk about the evolution of playwrights. And I think Ibsen is the one of the most fascinating in terms of where he started and where he ended up in terms of his evolution. And he sort of had four kind of key uh, areas, uh, periods of, of development. His early stuff, which most people don't even talk about unless you're in Norway. Then you've got the second part where he's doing Peer Gant. He's moving away from writing poetry. Uh, he's moving away from writing in Norwegian. And then you get into this third phase where he starts to become more modern. He starts to deal mm -hmm. with psychology uh, a little bit more. And um, and he starts writing in Danish, by the way. So Doll's House, oh. was, though he, was, he is Norwegian, Danish was, uh, I guess, he considered it a more um, welcoming language and a more hmm. bigger audience kind of thing. Interesting. But um, so yeah. With, with this one, he starts really insisting on like true naturalism. True naturalism. Right. Everyday and, life sort of taking place in a place like his hometown. Right. right. And I think the other fascinating thing is he starts thinking more philosophically. At this point, he's exiled himself to Italy and he spends time in Italy and Germany. He's away from Norway for like 27 years. And Can we all self-exile to Italy? Oh my God. Oh my God, I'd love to. Like, absolutely. Sounds hot. <laughs> it's the Florida of Europe. That's right. Oof, it's the better book. than that. It's I mean, <laughs> temperature-wise. The food's uh, better. It's the shape is kind of similar, too. Higher. They're both peninsulas. They're, they're both benin boots. They're both, both kind booties. of phallic and and stuff. Yeah, phallic. That's true. That's true. Um, Everything's phallic. Florida is America's wang. Um, but that being said, hashtag uh, patriarchy <laughs> so much. So I much say it's America's clit. No, it's not. It's not good enough to be a clit. It's not good enough for, no, a, clits are beautiful. for to be a clitoral <laughs> reference. No. Um, Penises are gross. It can be the penis. But just in terms of his philosophy and how Ibsen. he starts Ibsen. Hashtag Ibsen. Hashtag Ibsen. Ibsen. Slappy, as I like to call him. <laughs> I'm Slappy. Slappy Ibsen. I like his uh, whiskers. Like Henrik Slappy. Slappy. Um, but the, his philosophy and his idea and, and what he started exploring in terms of the human inner life, human desires as a, as a whole, the idea of, of having ambition, and then sort of recognizing that the, the that there's a patriarchy. And that's what part of the big inspiration of A Doll's House was, although he very, very sort of publicly was like, I'm not a feminist, uh, I'm not writing feminist stuff. He was basically saying the patriarchy sucks. If the rules and laws are being dictated by men, then women, by definition, can't be full human beings. And that sucks. And that's right. what inspires him to do this. Is And he had uh, a neighbor, a friend that was the inspiration for this under very similar circumstances. Do you want to tell us about her? Yeah, a little bit. Hold on, let me. <laughs> Sorry, because I mean, because what you were just saying is, it's like it's completely true. I think uh, 
everything that he was saying is the basis of modern feminism, right? W- which it is. But I here's my hot take. I might as well give it now, and then I want to yeah, hear about yeah. who this is based on. Um, it's not that hot of a take. I think it's just probably just a simple opinion that many people have. But I, I think it is really easy to read this and Hedda in some ways, but mostly this one as feminist. But honestly, in my opinion, I don't think that was fully his intention. Uh, mm-hmm. And like, right. as you're kind of saying, but it, I, I think it's a consequence of what he wrote, obviously, but I don't think he's trying to say anything about female independence or empowerment. I think he's more so writing existentially about Human. individualism. Right. Yeah. And, and, and just, just individualism and, and sense of self and, and not having your identity imposed on you, which in a patriarchal society, women deal with a thousand billion times more than men right that was sort of uh why he was able to use a woman to do this um but Nora just happens to be the person we're following through that situation um and she happens to be female because he he, he's basically saying well they have it the worst so let me show you that which is inherently feminist Mm -hmm. right right so it's like it's a weird thing for to be like well I'm not a feminist you you are though. It's like my dad well, would probably he, say he, not a feminist, uh, but like he totally is. He just doesn't realize it, you know. Right? Yeah. No. No. And and it wasn't that he was negating that. It was you know at a time before we know feminism the way we understand it today. Right. You know, in the late which is 80s, always ever changing. Which sure. is always ever changing, and it gets more and more and more complicated and dense in terms of academia, in terms of philosophy, and and all of that. Culture. But I think you're right, yeah. Bailey. I I, I I agree. It it was the big thing, and he loved poking holes in the status quo. Yeah. And marriage was an institution that, although he had a long marriage, uh, he it baffled him, and it baffled him th- those little rules. And and we see it in a doll's house that she's forced to you know um, uh, to sign her father's name. Um, because he's dying or was dead by the time she could do it. But she was forced to because she had to have either her husband or her father's signature in order to do business, in order to get a loan and all that shit. And But I also felt like her, my, my read on that is her being like, it's not a big deal though. Like, it's not like I have to do it because I can't, I mean, that's part of it. But like, I feel like the whole time she's like, well, what's a big deal? I'm just going to sign his name. He's my dad. Yeah. That leads me to a question that I have, which I don't know that I know the answer to these. This is like a string of questions, but like when she leaves him and her reasoning is uh, she can't be contained anymore is what she says. I can't be contained like this anymore. And he's in my a stranger. And right. He's, he's become mm-hmm. And was this a final straw moment? Did she always want to leave him? She borrowed this money, so obviously, and kept it a secret. So obviously, she had some sort of love for him. Or did she, was it wifely duty? Was it like why did she do one? Why did she illegally get the money at all and do this for him if she didn't want to be with him? And two, why did she leave him? Yeah, I mean, I think that she does, or that she at least thinks that she loves him, or at least is affectionate enough, or and feels obligated enough in her quote unquote wifely duties that she um that she that she has to do this and he's sick like 
you know, they, they talk about him like having tuberculosis and being on the verge of, of death and that she didn't see any alternative uh, and didn't have any other options. And so, yeah, for her, it, it wasn't such a big deal. And the fact that she found power in it, you know, she has yeah. that whole scene with Christina where she's talking about, and so I had to, you know, get into doing embroidery for money. And, and then I did copying for money. And she's like, I found it so fun that I could sit and write and write for hours and make money from it. And that little taste of things and that she's doing it all for, for him and for the family and for her children and for the institution and blah, blah, blah. Right. And I, then it, it's for me then to answer the second question, she, but then she gets thrown around like a pinball by these three dudes by, yeah. you know, by Krogstad who, who has her IOU and whom she owes money. You have the doctor who's, all of us who's dying and then all of a sudden's like i'm in love with you and she's like oh jesus christ like and then torvald who's just you know is just this just oblivious you know man of his time and right and those three things and then the her, his reaction is i think the triggering point i don't think that she's made or even thought fully of that decision until she sees his reaction to it all and then realizes like you said cj he's a stranger i don't know you the man i know wouldn't react that way and so i don't have i have to go find myself and that declaration that whole final scene is just I still think just stands the test of time for, for brilliance, but that's my two cents. CJ, what do you, how would you answer? Well, I felt like for the, for the, why did she do the money thing? I think love for sure. But I, for me, I think she is already having these little glimpses into wanting her own thing. And even like how fun it is to have secrets, like the cookies in the opening scene, which made mm. me want macaroons real fucking bad. Mm -hmm. um, and then, just this whole idea of like it was i mean i agreed on the the making her own money and and taking care of something but i think it was also just the fun of having the secret of doing it because yeah. she knows that if he found out he'd be furious it was yeah it was a separate life she was getting to live so i think you're getting which if you think of it that way it's not so crazy that she up and leaves in the end because she's Agreed. already kind of been thinking about it a little bit. Like, right. uh, like, wouldn't it be great if I, I, I'm finding out that I like things that maybe my husband doesn't like or approve mm. of, you know? Right. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah. you know, it was a huge shock. Obviously we've said this, I think in the last episode, this was a huge shock to European theater audiences. This there course. were literal riots. Yeah. Like people went fucking nuts. Okay. For a lot of reasons. Uh, but you know, I mean, what makes this so profound is if, if you think about what she'd be losing in this time, especially she'd be losing her kids. She'd be lo and probably never see them again. She's That's losing the problem people still have with the script. She left her children. Well, sure. But so, but here's the issue is that she, she leaves her kids. She leaves her husband. She leaves the status that she has in society. Mm -hmm. She loses all of that. And it's profound because this is, this is a huge disastrous consequence and yet this is all completely the right decision mm -hmm. like everything she's choosing to do is of course this is the right decision it's sort of like like i mean and it's it's different but it's it's similar also to like this idea of of someone who is being abused potentially right mm -hmm. and by their by their husband and mm. 
they, you know, the only way to leave, I mean, the only way to get out of it is to, is to leave them. And sometimes they have to leave things behind to do that. Now in society today, you, you can get the kids in society. Right. Then you could not. No, so that's something to keep in mind. Yeah. Right. So we got to think about the time this was written as 1879. Like people are yeah. not ready to look at that idea and people are still angry about that idea but i think now we're angry about it being like well now you would just get the kids and it's like right that's not an option here and so when you do this play if you modernize it it kind of makes a weird moment there for her to leave her kids but i think there's a way to direct it that it still works i've never seen it modernized so i don't know right uh but that could be interesting I don't yeah, know how somebody sure. would tackle well, that. Sure. I don't know what you would do. And I think the thing, I, and I I listened to an LA theater works or something, and something that just struck me about that last scene that I have that I did not hear in that script, and I guess I didn't when I've read it. I haven't read it this way either. But I mean, I don't think it's necessarily easy for her to leave her kids. No. Even just all the no. obligations that people tell her, like no. forgetting if she has feeling for them. Right. Um. That is a very that's a really gut-wrenching way that you could play that scene for sure. Yes, agree. Oh yeah. I also um, would go ahead, Scott. I was just going to say that there were there was two really crazy reactions. Strindberg did not like this play. He mm -hmm. challenged mm. it saying he never he doesn't see the motivation, he doesn't see the click and why she would leave at the end. So he was challenged that play. George Bernard Shaw on mm. the other hand fucking loved it and he's he said that he felt that it was most certainly a journey in search of self-respect and apprenticeship to life oh. and, that, and that her revolt and he saw this as a big cataclysmic thing is the end of a chapter of human history where where he saw he he projected this is he's like fuck yeah women are going to stand up and go fuck this status quo we yeah. have things have to change um and so that's just an interesting thing because when you think of strindberg you th i i generally think of more out there far more progressive far more you know insane thoughts and shaw i always think of as kind of conservative especially if you think about like pygmalion and shit yeah. but um but no he saw it he was like this is gonna be badass <laughs> like he saw the the explosion coming and i thought that that was that was cool. And, and the, the women that were inspired by it and that went on for it. And we should go back at some point and talk about Laura Keeler, um, who was the inspiration. She was basically um, a good friend of Ibsen. Um, and what between this similar thing happened between her and her husband and basically she had come to Ibsen saying, hey, I've written this thing. Would you help me get it published? And he was kind of like, nah. And so what she ended up doing is going and to get money. She like ended up like bouncing checks and stuff like that. And so her husband disowned her and had her committed to a fucking insane asylum. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Oh. And then she eventually did get out and she did have. Uh, a successful career as a writer and she did eventually get her children back but Ibsen felt so responsible like that he couldn't have you know but he didn't he didn't quite realize that she needed the money he was like eh, I don't know if I can put myself out there in terms of your writing but um, but that that was kind of the inspiration although later when the story came out she kind of 
spent the rest of her life going, I'm not Nora. I'm not Nora from a doll's oh, house. No. Please. Like, I'm not Nora from a doll's house. Oh, that makes but sense. But I just, you know, it was an interesting story that he viewed it, that he felt the guilt and that that, that was all hitting at the same time that, you know, his, um, he was examining the world philosophically and all of the, like, and he's, he's predicting, again, we talked about it in the first one, but he's predicting a lot of, Freudian ideas about a decade before before Freud is is publishing and be sort of becoming known. And then as we get into Hedda, he starts to predict uh, Jungian ideas that were like about 10 years before Jung started really publishing his shit. So I think that his insight into psychology uh, was greater than... Um, than than him viewing himself purely as a as a feminist or writing a feminist work it was it was a bigger thing to him um but that bigger thing just ricocheted throughout drama and literature and society so profoundly that we're still talking about it we're still talking about that fucking play we are literally still talking about it <laughs> currently um the only other thing i want to say about it is that it reminds me a lot of the plot of next to normal the sure yeah musical which uh i love deeply tom kitt uh writer of half the songs of bring it on the musical yeah our third play now this is a fun one to talk about this is one i i feel like maybe do you think most people know hedda or do you think most people know a doll's house if you said Ipsen? doll's house yeah. i'd say doll's house i mean that's, that's true one. I hadn't read Hedda yet, so this is my first. Mm. It was. It, it would be a close second. I think. I think it's. I think it's a little darker, and I think it's a little bit more complicated to unravel. So right. maybe it that's is. why Doll's House is um, is a little bit more. I feel like people remember both of them being Ibsen. I think, especially in theater world, people remember them both being Ibsen. I actually was thought Hedda was. Strindberg when we were first talking about it, I was like it's not head of that's Strindberg and I was like no that's Miss Julie that I'm thinking of uh -huh. uh, very different yeah. I think people forget that Ibsen wrote Peer Gint I think that definitely happened For I mean sure. I totally yeah. forgot that he had written that I was like no that's an opera or a ballet and it's like no 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 that was a play with music that then became those things later but our next play is the namesake of our podcast because this miniseries is uh, Pada Gabler mm-hmm we're going to yeah. be covering Hedda Gabler, um, her sister, Pada, Hedda. <laughs> um, CJ, um, yeah. break it down. Okay. CJ's breakdown. Hedda Gabler is newly married to a nerd and bored as shit. Mm. What else is there to do but fling passive-aggressive insults, fire pistols at visiting friends, or stir the proverbial pot? Why insert herself in love tris, kick degenerates off the wagon, burn life works, and provide suicide weapons, of course. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Um, one of the first things I just want to point out, and I, I saw this in a documentary, so to be fair, I, I it's not my um observation. <laughs> but he calls the play Head a Gabbler. And the dude, the the dude being talked to in the documentary is like, it's head a gabbler in the same way that Hamlet is Hamlet or Oedipus Rex is Oedipus Rex. Oh, yeah. It's, it is it is the name of the play. It is about this character in a profound way. And um, I also And it's watched, her maiden name. And it's her maiden too. name. Yes, absolutely. Right. Uh, General Gabbler. Um, 
but I also watched the uh, the documentary of uh, Kate Blanchett um, oh. prepare, preparing to do Hedda, cool. which was she'd be so, perfect. Oh my god! She and she and she talked about like resisting it for a long time because of the aura of it and she's like yeah. uh, it, i don't know if it's my thing i don't know if it's my thing and then she was like but if you're an actress unfortunately she looks into the camera she's like when you hit a certain age yeah it's like done certain things you've got you got to do it you got yeah. to keep thinking it. tilda swinton would be a fun head of gabbler oh I yeah i think she's done it the, I, have have a, a, I have a list of like she's got the perfect demeanor and voice and everything there's a list of What's her name from Sex in the City would be great too. Not Miranda. What's her name? Uh, redhead. Fuck. Oh, uh, fuck you guys for not knowing her name. Sex Cynthia Nixon. Cynthia Nixon. Oh, Cynthia Nixon. Yeah. Yes. Would be a phenomenal head of gabbler. I, I can think of a hundred phenomenal head of gabblers. Uh, Denia Mar Guerrera would be a phenomenal. Mary Louise Parker has done it. Uh, yeah, the only Benning. person Bailey thinks is a star. She's, she's the only star I've ever seen on stage. Sorry, guys. Thank you, Bailey. Diana Rigg has done it. Ooh. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, Kate Blanchett, cool. of course. Uh, Rosamund Pike has recently done it. And I watched a, a filming of the Ruth Wilson at the National Theater. Ooh, Ooh, nice. She was nice. uh, very, very good. Uh, I didn't watch the whole thing. I just watched parts of it, but it was phenomenal. And I watched a little five minute segment of her talking about Hedda. And I was like, oh, I love her. Uh, Ruth Wilson of His Dark Materials fan yeah, stage. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. She's now, this so is gorgeous a... in that show. She is. Maggie She's Smith. Maggie oh, Smith. Well, is our favorite well, Tennessee okay. Williams story. Now, you can <laughs> go listen to that miniseries. Go listen to the, the Tennessee Williams. <laughs> Go back and listen to the Tennessee Williams episode because it's worth listening to the whole story. But the basic idea is that Tennessee Williams was laughing his ass off as while well, Maggie Smith, from the moment she took the stage as Hedda Gabler to the end, and Tennessee Williams was in the audience. And at the end, he went to go see her backstage, still laughing. And she said, why, why are you laughing? Why did you laugh that whole show? That was, that was so awful for me. And he said, oh, that poor woman, she's so bored, ain't she? <laughs> I and want it's my favorite story of all time, and I think it's true theater. I want to party with Tennessee Williams. No, you don't. Nah. That would be terrible. Now, I will say <laughs> this is a play in four acts, which in my head was very daunting, but yes. each act is shorter than the last, which we love to see. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I hate it when the second act of a musical is longer than the first act. It makes me want to kill someone because it's just sort of like we got through that first act. I'm usually like, oh, that's the bulk. Okay, cool. Now we just we get to like glide from the climax down to the ending. And sometimes you'll see something where that second act has an extra half hour that you weren't ready for. And you're even like, 10 minutes. Bad. I'm like, what? Yeah, on. <laughs> too much, too much. Um, we should say uh, we've been talking about the phases and that this is sort of the first uh, play of his last phase right. where he's getting a little. Um, so we should say that at one point uh, at age 60, due to his fame he starts dating an 18 year old Ooh. uh he kind of leaves his wife and then he uh, that i think she passes away soon after that but he starts to he has tremendous amount of guilt and regret after that um and it kind of haunts all of his later plays they kind of all have this shroud so there are a lot of people uh a lot of psychoanalysis are like 
Hedda Gabler is, is Ibsen. He is writing. He that is himself. That oh, he is bored. That he's that that he's frustrated with the world. That things aren't changing as much as he is, and he's kind of lost well, a little bit of hope. It's interesting that the rest of this third phase is all following middle-aged or old men. Mm, yeah, master yeah. builder. You master know, the other builder. ones like are all very much that. It's interesting that this one is not. Um, what's the year on this, Scoot? Uh, had a gabbler come out in hold on, hold on, eighteen ninety. It's a hell of a year. Eighteen ninety. Okay, so we're a whole other decade later. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're, yeah. So this is truly we are covering a full span of this man's career, which I love. I love yeah. that we're getting to do that. Should we do a half hour on his facial hair? Real quick, we get could. How are we good on that? We could totally talk about his facial hair. Like, it's a lot. Uh, Go look at pictures. The chops are, uh, they're pretty awesome. He looks like a Maine Coon cat. I almost named Percy Ibsen, right? (laughs) You should have (laughs) because he has big square, like, it makes him look like he has a square head, right? Yeah, yeah, it's insane. Uh, anyway, okay, we don't have to do that. I, uh, (laughs) um, I really love this play. Uh, so like CJ said in her incredible breakdown, uh, mm-hmm. they've just returned from a honeymoon and uh, the play spans two days yeah. in September. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's these four people sort of interacting with each other. And it's both naturalistic and not in some ways for how existential it is, which is extreme, extremely interesting to me. Um, it's a powerful fallen woman story, which I think at this time had not really been portrayed on besides maybe Medea, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of like, what is something that had uh, been put Lady on stage? M. Was... Lady M would sure. be another one. Clytem- okay. Clytemnestra. Oh, what was the, but, what, what was sure. the check? Oh, the seagull. Seagull. Oh yeah. That's got some of that in there. I yeah. wouldn't call her like a powerful character. I'm thinking though. of like, the mom more than anything. Arcadidna. Yeah, Arcadia. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) sure. I think I think that's true. I think at this time it was interesting for the main character of a play for it to that it fully falling the titular character, if you will, uh, is this powerful fallen woman. Uh, And you know, now we have a thousand of those. We have August Osage County. uh, Mm -hmm. Violet is one, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Oh yeah, the the ricochet. The, the ricochet uh he's like a you know a stone in in being thrown in the pond like the ripples just that you can see you know we talked about churchill earlier you could you know you can see it in sam shepherd you can see it in sarah rule you can see it mm. in sarah Kane. like you can see him in in august wilson um all of just the way that he sort of just continues i mean much like Chekhov, i think is they're they're pretty similar. Although I think I may enjoy Ibsen more. Certainly, I enjoy Doll's House and and Hedda more than than some of the Chekhov that we read. I gotta hmm. I gotta say the whole idea that you said Bailey about the 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 fallen fallen powerful woman makes mm-hmm. me understand this play a little bit better because by the time I got down to it, I wrote down is Hedda Gabler a psychopath? Because the stuff that she does and the stuff that she encourages and the stuff that she considers worthy and beautiful are really ha- are cruel, awful things, you know? Right. She's well, fucking with people. Like, right. And Kate she's- Blanchett calls her a coward. 
Well, and he thinks ultimately okay. she's a coward. I think no, she's but cool. I, I disagree with that. And I here's the thing. She's like a, an extremely contradictory character, right? She is mm-hmm. both very cowardly at times and very brave at times, right? That's that's the issue. She's very weak at times and very strong at times. And I think there's something interesting to that because she's, I, she's like unpleasant and and like when you say cruel i think that's true but unpleasant and even honestly like unsympathetic as Mm a lead right pierre gant almost no not that far but she but she's i think she knows how to use her strengths and weaknesses too i think you see a hint of it in nora with how she talks to torvald and performs for him and acts sweet for him but i think hedda uses it to the nth degree in this. I right, think- and there are times I love her and there are times where I feel so much for her. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, I think right? it's hard not to. Sure. And I think she's also distinctly different with each man. She changes yes. her tactic with each man. And this goes to a lot of this sort of Jungian psychology thing. This idea yes. of, of the inner self, the inner desires, the inner wants and what what Ibsen sort of is dealing with in these later plays too, is also this sort of conflict between imagination and desires and reality. And Hedda is somebody who likes to play and live in her imagination and then is constantly reminded of the reality and where she stands in society, in the house, in relation to each person around her. And because and she, she grew up with pretty extreme privilege, right? That's mm-hmm. what's insinuated and probably was drilled into her head, the idea of like a normal life, a good life, whatever. And there's a lot of delusion here because she's pretty much completely lost internally. I mean, she's sort mm-hmm. of, and she's trying to grasp onto her personal possessions as an anchor of the, mm-hmm. her personality, which is what the, all the, you know, playing with the props and stuff is about. But here's an interesting take. Okay. Let's what if it. what if the three men and as a director, if I directed this, this is how I would do it. No one steal this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure it's been done because it's actually pretty obvious. But what if these three men are in her head? And this kind of goes into the Jungian stuff and stuff you were talking about, Scott. Each man is a singular representation of one characteristic of hers. So Tessman, her husband. Uh, is her ambition and her poshness and society and where she comes from. Loveborg, her old lover, is the love and the passion and the beauty and the poetry and the side that we want to root for. And Burke is the seedy judge who is the naughty, dirty, dark, terrible, cruel, mm-hmm. unsympathetic side to her. And she's having conversations with these things as an mm. individual. Now, I don't know. Well, I think that I think that you're right, because I also remember back when I did it, the, talking about how neurotic she was. And mm. by the literal definition of being neurotic, she's forced because of those men who all represent a section of society. He does the same thing with with Doll's House. He puts her one on one, puts that character one on one with these men as an example of the damage that they're that they're doing unwittingly to her yeah for the most part judge brock judge brock is <laughs> he's he's fucking with her he, mm-hmm. he knows what's going on but he and he's trying to power trip her too like like right. he thinks he has a chance because he 
he can press those buttons in her but all right. of it just makes her neurotic you know and right. and it's it's the pressure again we go back to the pressure of the patriarchy that is placed on women who don't have any voice in how the rules are set up so right. if you don't have any voice in how the rules are set up you're fucked you know and then you have to live as this second class citizen right and i think as like in a 2021 lens like we were talking about with doll's house where we have to we have to see it for the time it was written i, th I think now literature has gotten to a place where it's it's hard to write a woman as crazy and it not feel a bit offensive right especially sure. in our our patriarchal kind of thing um it's a bit overdone uh and we we see it I mean, it's, it is offensive. Like, I mean, for the most part, no one writes it correctly. Right. You know, like Violet in, in August Osage County doesn't feel like I just wrote a crazy woman. That's not mm -hmm, how it mm -hmm. feels. She's actually yeah. dealing with mental illness and that is, right. but, but a lot of the times in movies and pop culture, I think it's misrepresented. And I, again, I think he's doing what he did in Doll's House where she's telling us a lot of things about the human condition Mm. as well as our patriarchal society and, and things like that. And, and it, the fact that she's a female it means a lot of things, but also just like, it's not always just that she's crazy or she's neurotic. And even though I agree with everything that has been said, mm -hmm. I think sometimes it is also that it's just like human brains, man. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how yeah. else to say that. Like yeah. human brains are fucking whacked <laughs> yeah yeah they're they're not a perfect instrument by any stretch no. of imagination wacky whacked there's something interesting that again talking about ibsen developing there's we talk about the hope at the end of a doll's house and there's a quote um an honest an ominous and disturbing alternative to the liberation experience of nora in a doll's house is head of gabbler which is a searing psychological study of the self-possessed and independent new woman Nora wishes to become, whose aspirations, limitations, and dissatisfactions annihilate her. So yes. what he's what it's 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 almost a, a sequel or a follow-up thinking of, oh, we've I've set this th this person's been set free and mm -hmm. the society is gonna still fucking pound on her. It's still gonna right. mess with her I in a, in, a, in a horrible way. I personally feel like the sequel to A Doll's House is Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> Where she just goes and does her, her own just, life and travels Mexico! She goes have some margaritas, meets Mexico. a cute boy at the resort. Cute. Amsterdam. Uh, I will say um, there is a sequel to A Doll's House called there A is. Doll's we, House yeah. Part 2 that Ibsen did not write. It was right. I, I, I should look up the playwright, Please but it do. was written. And the, uh, Tony, it wins best play? I believe, uh -huh. uh, 20, I want to say 14, 2015. Yeah, By it's Lucas pretty... Snaff. Huh. Snaff. And they had Laurie, Mac Laurie Metcalf, right? Yes, Laurie, Laurie Metcalf. Metcalf, yeah. Here, I'm looking at it. As 2017. Like older Nora, is that what it is? Or what? I don't know anything about this play. No, it's it's on my list and it I have It premiered at the South Coast Rep. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Nice. What you were saying, Scott, about her situation, her past uh, destruction, right? Because she's also, she's being destroyed by these things from her past, but she's also constantly destroying herself. And yeah, by the end of this play, we'll continue to destroy herself <laughs> because she can't really escape where she is. Like, she's not going to be able to escape where she is. It's not like a doll's house where she can just leave. She can't escape her trauma. She can't really escape her past. 
she feels very stuck she, in where she's she at. She can't escape the crime, too. Right, no. right. And it, and she is living in a pretty deep crime. state of delusion, which is doesn't help any of this. Right, right, right. right. It, she can't bear the life that she's lived. And ultimately, I think the play ends up being about and I could be wrong about this, but this is sort of what I ended with. I put it down and had a moment to myself. The play is about our ability to destroy ourselves and others. We mm-hmm. are very, very capable of this. Here, mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And there's then there's also, you know, we get back into the Freudian stuff too, of all yeah. of her past, her sort of obsession with her father. And th- there's kind of an Electra complex that's described. And, and the pistols are penises. uh, what uh she she handed her dick to loveborg yeah well yeah like she yeah she's obsessed with the pistols because they're a power they're a reminder she wishes she were a man so she could be and maybe when she she holds this she she is powerful because she she can take life away she wishes she she had the power of of a man it's it's el topo she wishes she had the power of a man i think and or you know and sure and oh god that i were a man mm-hmm you know and oh god i were a man girl but no it's and it's layered like there's there's so many little nuances and uh, I, I, I i tell everybody to go watch the the documentary that's on youtube with kate blanchett and uh hugo weaving um rehearsing and like just getting into like she literally they have like they break and they're into a conversation about well is it any way or is it any way what is it and there's two different mm. things here and so they're like they're how they're picking through and it's it's a newer translation it's a more modern translation and the playwright is is there and part of the process so it's an interesting great theater nerd thing because they're all on stage and they're in rehearsal rooms and I was I was also thinking while I was reading it how pearl clutchy this must have been back in the day because I'm it's dealing <sighs> with you know infidelity falling off the wagon alcoholism and suicide I mean with how Christian that I feel like it should have been super Christian I feel like people would have been losing their minds about someone killing oh, themselves yeah. on stage I mean he was he was he was or controversial yeah you know yeah he definitely got people worked up for sure for sure Y'all, do you have anything else you want to say about Hedda Hedda Uh It's fantastic. I think um, one of the things we didn't talk about is I think it's one of those plays, you know, it's like Hamlet. You you don't go going, I'm going to do Ham, I'm going to direct Hamlet without having a Hamlet. I, I don't think you go and you do Hedda without having your Hedda first. Um, it's, it's one of those quintessential roles that uh, I think is magnificent and um, uh, it's just cool. I'd love to see you do it someday, Siege. It's someday. one of my one of my we'll talk about it in a second. All right. Well, we'll get to that because first we have something that uh is my one of my personal favorite segments. What are you talking about? Bailey loves ranking shit. I do. I love I love it. I love ranking things. I have a Twitter about it. I do it all the time. Check it out, y'all. I'm really excited for our curtain call number two, where we rank all of the playwrights and all of the plays. Not all the plays, but we we choose our. What do top we do? 10 pick plays. our top ten. Yeah. We pick our top ten plays and we list them off each, and then we uh, rank all of the. I think it's twelve or eleven 
playwrights. playwrights. It's yeah. going to be really hard to do. And mm -hmm. I might make us rank our own stuff movies that we watch. <laughs> well, I know where a couple of them are going. That'd be really fun. <laughs> um, but I do love ranking shit. So let's kill some darlings. Let's rank these babies. Uh, who wants to go first? CJ, ladies yes, first. CJ, because I don't, I don't feel good about this at all. I have oh, three, three Pier Gint, two Hedda, one Doll's House, and I don't, I, I, I was waiting to get through these discussions to rank Hedda and Doll's yeah. House, yeah. and I don't feel good about having them either way. But I put Hedda for two and one Doll's House. Okay, Scott, I'm the same. Um, I think that Hedda is the greater accomplishment and might be the better play, but I find a doll's house so satisfying is the wrong word. I but like the I'm, hope at the end, personally. I, I like so. the hope at the end, but I, I just also just love every scene and how intricate and how delicate it is and how marvelous it would be to play all of those scenes. Yeah. So same, same list, Siege, same list. Uh, my list is number three, Pierre Gint. Number two, A Doll's House. Number Ooh. one, Hedda going, Gabler. Going against the stream, hot take. Yeah, no, this has been my, this has been it. I, I had a really, I read it in college and didn't think anything of it. This rereading got me so pumped that I went looking for productions of it and found that Ruth Wilson one. Like, I, I really love this play. I also yeah. like your directorial idea, Bailey. Yeah. That's I, I want to do that. I want to do that really badly with a really fire cast. Mm -hmm. And then Pierre Gant is just not for me. I think it'd be really fun maybe someday to adapt it in, in some way, but it, it's not something I related to. It's not something I think is... is I'd like to see it at the National Theater in London where they have sure. all of God's money to produce I would love right. a huge budget version of this, right, which is the only way it really could, can or should be done. Um, but it wasn't It wasn't my, my bag. Yeah. Uh, Doll's House, phenomenal play. It's barely under Hedda Gabler for me. I, I love that play a lot. Mm -hmm. I found myself drifting in my mind when I would read it sometimes, whereas mm -hmm. with Hedda, I was like so in it. All right. I yeah. felt I was so with her. And like, even when it's, it gets like ridiculous and every she starts... scene is so loaded. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. in terms of like, just yes. going back to, to acting basic one-on-one somebody's yes. somebody's coming into a room, somebody's already in the room and somebody and the person coming into Dynamics. the room wants, wants something from the other person. It is Go. a study Go. in specificity, dynamics, status, like all these, like I'm, I'm, yeah. It's a it's a dream for I think for actors, especially Hedda, and it's a huge dream for uh directing. Now, there's another part that we gotta do that has to do with dreams. What? What is it? Yeah. That's right, dream rolls. Hey, Siege, what were yeah. you going to say earlier? What, what's one of your biggest dream rolls, huh? I'd love huh? to try Hedda Gabler. Yeah. And then I also really love Christine in mm. Doll's House. I yes. love Nora too, but I just, I don't think, man, she doesn't, nah, nah. Christine, all the way. Christine. <laughs> Christine, all the way. Yeah. What about you, Skate? Uh, Judge Brack. Man, he's fucking, oh, he's, yes. he's nasty. He's and I like smarmy. It. He's smarmy. And yeah. then, um, and then Krogstad, Krogstad. What a uh, great character. It's a, it's a great character because in the Juliet Stevenson version that I watched from 1992, 
um, the actor who I've seen before now his name escapes me was just you were you you were rooting for him like he he had he had guilt about what he had done in the past and how his past had haunted him which is just a reoccurring theme throughout all of Ibsen past 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 um but I think it's it's great and it's like and then it, it, the the scene with Christina at the end is is so hopeful and charming and uh yeah what about you Bailey I want to play the Goblin King in Pure Game. Um, no not really i would kind of have fun doing that you would have have a blast i I definitely play the mother someday i'm good at cranky old women asia (laughs) yeah i think so too uh no i i think i really want to direct hedda i think that's it i don't Mm. i don't know that any of these parts really speak to me doll's house is interesting i think i'd have fun reading it i don't know that i'd have fun performing it i think i'd have fun directing it but this but hedda really spoke to me if I had to choose someone, maybe Brack, or I could just be Bertha the servant. I, um, I've, already, I've, already, <laughs> I've already played Testman, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't need to do that. Again. I love dumb, pretty boy parts. They're always funny to read. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I forgot to mention I loved his mansplaining to Christine in a doll's house about how embroidery is more attractive to look at than when a woman is knitting. Well, sure. It's kind of like the 1860s version of "Why don't you smile more?" Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. Um. Okay. So we have one more segment we gotta do, Uh, and then I have a little something I want to read that has to do with that. Uh. But, uh, Scott. L.A. Spotlight. I LA Spotlight, yeah, you got me. LA Spotlight. I, 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 I don't right now. Uh, Nocturne is still playing at the Fountain Theater. Go check mm-hmm. that out. Causing Please. a lot of controversy. Go see it. Yeah, yeah. a lot of controversy, uh, which is what it's supposed to do and what the author wanted it to do. Um, uh, beyond that, uh, things are starting to slowly open up. We just can't wait for it to get back. Fuck you, Delta variant. Thank yeah, you. find your favorite Are companies you? online, y'all, and just see what they're up to. A lot of them have all kinds of digital shit, or maybe they might even need some financial help, so... Just keep following your favorites, peeps. It's true. Okay, so there's something I want to do that's kind of part of an LA Spotlight, but it's not really. We've had a past guest who was on our August Wilson miniseries. Mm. Mm. Uh, a friend of Scott's, mm. I believe, now a friend of, of both CJ and I's, mm-hmm. Raphael Clements. Raphael Clements. Yeah, I did like a We the People with him many moons ago. But he's, uh, We love him. He's got some phenomenal context in the theater world, and, and you should definitely go back and listen to the August Wilson episode. But he sent us, after listening to the Top Dog, excuse me, Top Pod, Under Pod miniseries on Susan Lee Parks, he sent some notes. Okay, now Mm. this is not him correcting us. This is like him being like, hey, these are some things that that should be mentioned. And I'm like, totally. So I'm just going to read it because it's very interesting to me. Okay. By the way, he saw the original production of this. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Of Top Dog Underdog. Okay. So he says, Park's Scarlet Letter play, which is called Mm -hmm. In the Blood, Mm -hmm. deserves a mention. Also, fucking A deserves a mention, which is a play that we almost covered and decided not to because we decided to do... Spread things out a little bit. Right, exactly, over time. Uh, But definitely deserves a mention. Um, And he says, how she riffs on Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter in the context of women, particularly African-American women, being branded, sexualized, and victimized in the world is deep, disturbing, and complex, as as you've probably gathered by reading her works. And he says, you get as much out of reading her 
her plays as they are to stage. Also, Jeffrey Wright and Don Cheadle were great in Top Dog Underdog. <laughs> oh, my God. But the original cast of Wright and Most Deaf, a.k.a. Yasmin Bey, yes. uh, who I've seen in concert twice, at the public theater was also special. There's some question as to why Deaf didn't follow the show to Broadway. Some tension between him and Wright is what I've heard. Then he mm. said, he corrected himself. He said, whoops, I got it mixed up. I saw Cheadle in the original cast at the public and he was replaced on Broadway with Most Deaf. I didn't realize that. Oh. Ah. So... Uh, and he says he heard that there was some conflict between the two actors being the reason for the change to Broadway. Uh, mm. So that must mean that Jeffrey Wright and Don Cheadle weren't super getting along, maybe, which is interesting. Mm. Uh, and then his last thought was, you may cover it in your discussion of Top Dog Underdog, but if not, I wanted to mention this. I believe uh, one of the unspoken conflicts between Lincoln and Booth is colorism. Lincoln is a light-skinned black man, while Booth is a dark-skinned black man. In their world, Lincoln has advantages that Booth does not, which is in part because of their appearance. I think Jeffrey and Don were cast in their roles foremost because of their talent and stage experience. But the fact that Wright was cast as Lincoln and Cheadle cast as Booth was probably deliberate because of what the shade of their skin also adds to the play and their conflict. And not a word needs to be said about it. Hmm. Anyone wow. with knowledge about race in the U.S. and the issue of colorism among African Americans historically would have picked up on this if they saw the public theater production. So, absolutely, we didn't even get into that. We got to talk about those two phenomenal actors, but we didn't even think about the idea of them being two totally different shades of right. skin color, right? And what that adds to it. Anyway, I didn't want to make uh, the episode any longer uh, than it needed to be, but this is no, actually going to be no. a pretty yeah. tight episode, I feel like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're looking pretty and good. And I love Should we stretch it out? Raphael. He's great. No, no. Should we no, talk? We... Should we call Raphael right now? And... <laughs> Let's call him. <laughs> hey, man. Get on our uh, Zoom, bro. But he's um, uh, he's awesome. He's He's been an amazing audience member and listener mm -hmm. and contributor to this podcast we need to have him back uh for sure absolutely uh, soon. Next season. Uh, and thanks he's Raphael also, he's also just one of the sweetest kindest smartest people you ever want to hang out with absolutely and, and, and uh I had the pleasure of doing two shows with him so thanks. we love you Rob. thank you thank you sir thank you you're the best and we love y'all for listening we we appreciate it deeply uh thank you for joining us for part two and the end of our mini series pot of gabbler the works of henrik ibsen uh our next in stuff is a cj pick which is showgirls yes paul verhoven's showgirls i'm very excited about put this on one. your versace and pour some champagne with your brown rice and vegetables and eat those <laughs> french fries with vigor um and you know maybe have sex in a pool while Wait, flopping like a dead fish <laughs> <laughs> i am obsessed that's with that how movie. i do it so right. it's all good by me it's hot i really ah. I, I i honestly like seriously i think everyone if you're if you look up what's in it because there's some triggering things in this movie but yes. i think everyone should re-watch showgirls before listening to our episode which is next week because you have a whole week to find it. It's not on anything. You need to. I have it on DVD. Ask it. me if you know me. <laughs> Call CJ and say I need the DVD. It's the director's. My cut. number is. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and we all have we all have some pretty hot takes on it. Like that was we the did. thing. Like like my research took me down a weird path, and I was like, oh, 
Oh, I saw it with just... whole new eyeballs this well, last time. And I definitely brought a, a, a weird rose tinted vision of it to the podcast because I love Paul Verhoeven. And I think he's doing a lot of things that like people that Ibsen was doing with Peter Gint, where he's not always trying to please the audience necessarily. Right. right. And right. I think I love that. I think I'm kind of <laughs> obsessed with that. He's phenomenal. Um, Jodorowsky is also the same way. Uh, should we talk about our favorite musicals real quick? We got a half hour to fill. What do you guys want to? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, this has been a really good mini series. It really has. I had a one. ton of fun. Thanks, yeah, it, it was. Yeah, again, we we mentioned it in the first part, but like my dread of, of going, well, oh, I got to fucking read that Ibsen, and then just going, God damn that Ibsen, like right on dude like he was right. super progressive uh way ahead of his time in so many ways and man they're good stuff shit so after showgirls showgirls uh we are going to be covering our next playwright which since we're recording this in advance i haven't given anybody time to guess it so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna announce it here but I'm also gonna leave a space for a name to be added in. Okay. If someone sends me the answer via DMs, text, whatever it may be, email, Twitter, I will insert that name before I post the episode. But if no one says anything, it's just gonna, I don't know, Scott, we'll, we'll put in something there. Uh, <laughs> I'll do, I'll do stinger. my best. Insert I'll stinger do. here. Yeah. There you go. Uh, I'll just do And the first person to guess it was. Drum roll, please. Raphael Clements. Congratulations. You have won our respect and love. How fortunate that they just got done talking about how amazing you are. Maybe you are their only listener. Ha ha ha. Goodbye. But our next playwright, uh, the name of the miniseries is M. Potterfly, because we are covering the incredible, and this is our final playwright of the season, <gasps> David Henry Huang. I am so excited. Yes. 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 I'm so excited. Uh, we have three plays chosen, which I've forgotten already. Which ones are we doing? We're doing... Yellow Face, Yellow M. Face. Butterfly, and... Um... Not Chinglish. No. Fuck. Though we did that save that one online. What's the other one we're doing, guys? Check the Slack. I'm yeah. looking. I'm checking Don't cut Slack. any of this. I want people to know that we... No, this is great. Production yeah. meeting. Plus, we need to stretch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fill uh, time. Fill time. Was, uh... Should I sing a whole song at wait, the end? I'll sing wait, a whole song. M. Butterfly, it. Golden Child, Yellow Face. Golden, Golden Child. Child. <laughs> okay, yeah. What we're trying to do, y'all, is we're trying to space out the plays that we choose since we're trying to talk about the playwright and their evolution we want to do things that are beginning middle and later in their career but that doesn't always work out in terms of if we can find the scripts that yes. we can all read yeah. so it's a little difficult these are a little close together but not too much and he hasn't been writing but for a few decades so it's not too crazy yeah um and we have amazing guests a dear friend of mine who we have done an artist spotlight with, but never had on the podcast. He is a, a, a star of TV and stage and uh, a, a dear friend of mine. He also teaches with me at the Shakespeare Youth Festival, and he's a recurring bad guy on Hawaii Five-0. No, no big deal. Uh, his it. name's Keila Paquette. He's 
one of my favorite people on the planet. He's a very lovely uh, guy. Absolutely, uh, one of the most gorgeous people on on the planet. And yes. you met him, CJ. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. At, at the uh, Black Women Period uh, organized protest, which was organized by Catherine Washington. Wow. What nice. A uh, incredible. But besides that, we love you guys. We appreciate you. Yes. Siege. Hey, do y'all have questions, comments, corrections, requests? We would love to hear from you. You can email us. Uh, you can also message us on Facebook, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Facebook. Or I even challenge y'all. Call it like tag us in something and say something so that all of your friends can see what you're listening to. Yes. Uh, we would love to get we would love to get out there a little bit more. Scott. Thank you, CJ. A big shout out to the great Ryan Thomas Johnson for our theme song. Our theme song is better than your theme song. It's true. He also writes all of our stingers. Ryan is also one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet on the face of the earth. Uh, Big shout out to Pam Quinn for writing our Ibsen-centric song, which Mm -hmm. you are about to hear right now. We haven't well, right heard it now? yet. Yeah, we haven't heard it yet. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we're going to pretend like we did. Right. It's amazing. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Top good. of the billboard charge. And finally, to the great Pulitzer Prize winning playwright, Annie Baker, for writing every single episode of our podcast. She does it every week, and she doesn't even know it. And one day, Annie Baker, we're going to buy you a beer. Can't That's- wait. Correct. We love you all so much. I say that so many times at the end of the episode, but we really, really do. If you would rate, subscribe, and review, we'd love you even more. Ah, just do it. (laughs) It takes like five seconds. Truly. If you didn't know, we didn't say this on the last episode, but if you didn't know, you should know that mouths and butts are the same thing. Indeed. Mm -hmm on both a literal figurative and metaphorical level they're the exact same uh yeah. and scientific level you know uh peace guys much peace love. And love yeah love later y'all. our planet is poison the oceans the air around and beneath and above you um henry that's true and i totally care i'm trying to tell you i love you what the world is at war filled with death and disease we dance on the edge of destruction the globe's getting warmer by deadly degrees and this is one fucked up seduction the planet is pretty much broken beyond all repair but one thing is working if you're standing there, perfect for you, <laughs> I can be perfect for you. <laughs> I might be lazy, a loner, a bit of a stoner. It's true. That's the Ibsen centric uh, song, guys. Well done. That was <laughs> okay. <bye. laughs> okay. I'm getting here. It is later, here it is. everybody. Eyes opening. Fingers moving slow, but they're there. Breathing in, breathing out, wanna shout, but can't, not quite there. They're there. Arms move, legs twitch, each stitch makes their way real move to the side
Doesn't see.